0: This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript, the good parts, build web applications with Node.js, AngularJS in-depth, and advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jammer link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash javascriptjammer. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support and high performance all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at javascriptjabber.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at javascriptjabber.com slash Rackspace. This episode is sponsored by widgemo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5, and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 137 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood. Uh, I just want to give you a quick reminder to go check out JSRemoteConf. You can uh, go to JSRemoteConf.com, or you can text JSRemoteConf to three eight four seven zero and get all the details about the conference, either on your phone, in your email, or both. We also have two special guests this week. We have Henrik... Oh, man. I should have looked at your (laughs) last name before I tried to say it. Your tag. Your tag. tag. All right. And we also have Philip Roberts. Hey. You guys want to introduce yourselves really quickly?
1: Go ahead, Philip. Sure. I'm Philip Roberts. I'm a JavaScript developer with Yet. I live in Scotland, in the United Kingdom.
2: I work remotely, so uh, yeah, that's me. And I'm Henrik. I don't have quite the same cool accent that Philip does, but uh, I also work at And Yet, uh, one of the partners here, and uh, write a bunch of JavaScript. So yeah, hi.
0: Do you want to briefly tell us what And Yet is?
2: Sure. Yeah, we're kind of an open web tech company, if you will. Um, we, we do a lot of consulting around kind of real time web applications, uh, things like WebRTC and chat and XMPP. Also, just JavaScript in general. We, uh, um, do tons and tons and tons of open source work. So a lot of people know us through our open source uh, libraries and frameworks and tools around communication stuff. We have lots of open source WebRTC stuff like simple WebRTC, which is a rather popular uh, WebRTC library and also we're kind of building out a whole suite of tools around that, uh, that we're calling OTOC, OTOC.org. And so that's just a bunch of like components and things for doing WebRTC type things on the internet, which is cool. So there's a team of about 40 of us. Uh, a lot of us are based in Eastern Washington, but we're really spread out all over the place. Mike Phillips in Scotland. We've got a few people in Poland and well, help me out here. What else do we have? Poland, uh, Arizona, Portugal, Philadelphia, Portland. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Colorado. Peters in Colorado.
2: Yeah. So kind of kind of spread out all over. All over. But yeah, yeah. Good team. Lots of passionate designers and developers.
0: Yep. I'm also going to apologize to our audience. We have this echo and we can't quite figure out what's causing it. So. I and thought it was
3: just we are so cool that people want to hear us twice.
0: That's right.
2: Quite possible. So Jameson's,
3: so Jameson's been, <laughs>
2: involved
0: been involved in TacoConf. In, so Otak and Taco, you know. <laughs> that's made in
3: Avon right there. Yeah. That's, right. that's true. They're pretty similar. One, you read articles about wikipedia or wikipedia articles about tacos sounds, do you sounds like taco if you mumble yeah <laughs> so i think the reason that we were excited to talk to you is twofold one it seems like and yet is a pretty unique company they're heavily involved in kind of the open web as a consultancy but also you do a lot of other cool things just as a company and then the other thing is you you do a lot of cool technical things related to javascript do you want to talk about kind of some of the philosophies behind how your company works and what you do does that make sense or is that too vague
2: no that works okay philosophy so i mean we're really kind of people first is kind of our big thing so we're heavily focused on kind of enabling people on our team to pursue the things that they're excited about and we really have quite a talented team we feel really lucky to work with i mean i I feel personally lucky to work with everybody that i get to interact with so you know really people who are who are passionate about technologies and leaders in their various fields and so I think as a result of that you know many people on our team get asked to go speak places and so people kind of hear about us through kind of some of the things that we do in terms of open source work but yeah we just love we just want to see push the web forward and uh, I don't know I mean it's kind of hard to sum it all up but I mean definitely the thing that pays the bills is that we do consulting work and we've done consulting work for lots of great clients so big ones being you know at and t uh, we do work for a company called CAA they're the largest talent agency in the world we've done. I don't know. It's just a very broad range of things. Uh, we also have Lyft Security is kind of a a subgroup within AndYet that does security consulting. And in that realm, they've done consulting for you know, Netflix and GitHub and, and you know, a bunch of these big companies. So security analysis we've, and, and all yeah, that. We've, we've talked to
3: Adam Baldwin about the Node Security project on here. So
2: Oh, excellent. I yeah. thought they were somehow related
3: because didn't AndYet used to be called Lyft and then they changed their name or something?
2: No, so what happened was Adam Baldwin had a had a different company called Ingenuity, and they were kind of doing IT and security work. And then uh, him and his partner kind of parted ways because he wanted to focus on security stuff. And so at that time, he joined Yet and uh, it kind of brought his team over and been operating under Lift Security name, and, uh, you know, since that time.
3: There are a lot of web consultancies. I feel like one of the things that kind of sticks out is I remember someone, one of your employees tweeted about like a blood drive that and yet was helping organize. It seems like you do a lot to support things that people, that your employees care a lot about beyond just
2: like crank out the billable hours. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're definitely atypical, I think, in that sense, which I think is kind of unfortunate. But uh one of our team members Nathan Fritz he put it this way and I think it makes sense he's like and yet it's kind of a service to its employees in many ways you know we we just wanted to create a place that we wanted to come work at and that a team of people that we wanted to work with and uh have been able to I don't know how but we, the, the team we we've ended up with <laughs> is
3: is pretty extraordinary so how does that work with all your open source work like how do you balance the need to pay the bills with the I don't know, all the cool stuff you do for the community and, and with the community. Uh, I do you, mean, do you just build these things as a consequence of your consulting work and then you'll just open source parts of it or do you like give people free time to work on whatever they want to make the web better or what do you think?
2: Typically, how we do things is we try, I mean, historically, what's happened is the open source work has led to the consulting work. So people will find us through the work that we're doing and putting it on the internet, and then say, hey, we want you to help us build XYZ. And then we do so and then we usually try to we're starting with existing open source technology and we build everything with open source and we, as much as possible, even some of these big clients that we've had, we've been able to convince them to uh, let us open source, you know, all the kind of non-core business value pieces of uh, the things that we're building for them. So, you know, really kind of trying to push the open source uh, model in terms of building consulting work around it, but also having, you know, really it's been driving a lot of the consulting that we have gotten so far if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, no, it totally does. I wanted to talk about all of the... So I know one of your products you already talked about a little bit is the, the Google Hangout replacement without the Google. Yeah, Can yeah, you explain yeah. kind of how
1: that came about and some of the
3: tech stuff behind it?
1: I'm working on a bunch of Toki stuff right now. So basically the original iteration of Toki, I think, was was it you and Adam, Henrik, that kind of hacked it out? The original version?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, we, we built this library, uh, simple WebRTC, basically in, in the process of, you know, trying to do some other stuff. And I hacked, I, I had, I'd seen this WebRTC thing and I hadn't seen anybody do a multi-user version of it on the web yet. And so in kind of a random hack night, figured out how to do it. And get a multi-user video session going with WebRTC. And then Adam was like, Hey, you should put this on the internet. And I did. And he helped me design a little, little app around it. And, uh, we put it out there and people started using it like in droves. So, you know, since then we've done a bunch of iteration on it. And, uh, you know, Philip's been doing a lot of work on that recently, but also, you know, a bunch of the people on our team really figuring out how to scale it more. I mean, the way, the way, what it actually is, is basically no authentication. Just open video chat. So anybody who's on the same URL at the same time is in the same conversation. So uh, you don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to download any plugins. It just kind of works, which is one of the biggest complaints we hear about Google Hangouts.
0: So I have to ask for some clarification here. What exactly is WebRTC?
2: Sure. So WebRTC is basically native peer-to-peer networking in the browser. Browsers have started adding this. Uh, it's been, I don't know, about three years now. Um, and it's gotten better and better, but it lets you do peer to peer voice video and data without going through a central server. So once you actually connect to a peer, uh, you're sending data directly to that browser.
3: So I think every person that's used Google Hangouts to coordinate with teams regularly has thought like, this is such garbage. I could build a better one in a second. Uh And you know, like, but it's cool to see that you're actually doing it. Um, is this a product that you're making? that you're going to be like charging for or is it well like, so the how does the ver- it fit
2: yeah no the version that's online right now is this kind of the initial iteration and we're always going to have a free talkie online what we're finding is that people want to have kind of hosted private version. versions of these or hosted versions that they know like is their own namespace and nobody else is using and so that's what we're selling and uh, we, we have kind of an alpha version of that right now we're testing with a few customers and The goal is to monetize, you know, that that's where we're planning on monetizing the business and having the public stay free and available. You mentioned that uh WebRTC, like the dream is that it
3: is peer-to-peer networking between browsers. I don't know a ton about it, but it seems like from my experience that dream is not the reality. And you need all these kind of intermediate servers to tunnel through NATs and do all kinds of weird networking stuff. How how do you handle that or do you do people just have to use your service and your apis to take care of all that in the background
2: well come to find out it's not quite as simple as we originally had hoped so this yeah is it's, true. it's I, the
3: perfect <laughs> hackathon technology because you can make something awesome in like an hour and right. but then to actually make it production ready you have to like pull your hair out
2: yeah and uh i don't know philip has been pulling some hair out i believe <laughs>
1: <laughs> well Fippo mostly on our team is the uh is the kind of signaling guy. But yeah, you're right. Peer-to-peer WebRTC has kind of two issues. So one is the, like, not traversal and stuff, which is basically, like, if you're behind a router um, in different, like, deep in different company networks, then peer-to-peer connections kind of struggle to get through. And so you have to use various uh, means of kind of handling that, one of which is a turn server, which is basically a media relay. So the video, like, you send the video to, like, a central server, which sends it on to the you know, the recipient, so it's kind of no longer peer-to-peer, which is kind of, it's more complex kind of architecturally, but one of the other challenges with WebRTC is it becomes really hard to scale above, like, a four- or five-person call because if you're sending peer-to-peer, all the data has to go to all the peers, so you're, you have to send, sure. like, high-res video to, like, five, six, seven other people, which kind of doesn't scale so well. So there's a couple of techniques with like these sort of centralized media servers or forwarding servers, which can help you scale that stuff up. And that's where like turning these like hack weekend multi-user like video into something that actually scales to like, we're targeting 25 people calls at least for Talkie2. And yeah, that stuff gets pretty complicated. Fortunately, we've got a couple of people on our team who are really, really good at that stuff. So we're excited about getting out this next version, which can support, you know, big calls and handle networks and all that nonsense.
2: That's cool. Yeah, but the Google Hangouts caps out at 10, I believe, right now. And so being able to do 25 people, bi-directional video audio is pretty awesome. We find a lot of people are running into that upper limit on Hangouts. And so, I mean, even just for our team to be able to do kind of our our kind of hands-on or all-hands meetings, you know, we can't just do it with Hangouts. We always hit those upper limits. So we're kind of solving our own problem in this, which is always, it's always a good way to approach technology, it seems like, because... And you end up actually making sure that it works the way you want it to. Sure, that's our hope for this—to maybe really be able to solve this. And it's the cool thing is it's all built on open source, here, and it, you know using open standards. And so all the individual components that power Talkie are all on GitHub.
3: So Philip, you mentioned a little bit that there are some techniques to scale beyond multiple. Well, I guess it depends whether we want to get into the nitty gritty or not. Maybe we shouldn't dive that deep into
0: it sure let's nitty-gritty
3: okay nitty-gritty it how do you do it i mean if you <laughs> I'll have do to my get, best if you have to get 25 video signals to 25 people how else would you do it besides does it just go through the same kind of thing it all goes through a central server and then the server sends the videos out
4: to everybody
1: this is where my knowledge starts to get a bit fuzzy and Fipo's
4: that's gonna totally kill.
1: fine Fippo's gonna kill me when he uh when he just make it make finish. it sound really easy and then make it sound legit like yeah well basically how, how is if- it
3: not done yet come on man
1: if you want to like Wikipedia it, there's two techniques. So a selective forwarding unit is one, and the other one is an MCU, which the acronym I can't remember. Can you remember what it is, Henrik? I think it's just
2: media control unit.
1: Yeah. And FIPO can tell you why an SFU is better than an MCU, but I can't I can never remember the arguments. Um, it's,
2: it's essentially because you have to then centrally decode and code everything with an MCU, whereas with a selective forwarding unit you have everybody multicasts. All right, go ahead, Philip. I think I'm beating you to the punch. Oh, no, that's okay. So, I yeah. Mean, that's, the, yeah, that kind of makes sense, yeah. So selective forwarding unit, what it does is everybody sends two versions of their video. They send high-res and low-res, and then it streams it down. You, you connect to the central unit, and then it streams it you know, based on... Other signaling that you send, it sends the appropriate streams at the appropriate time. So you can have a bunch of low res streams. And because you're not essentially kind of re transcoding everything, uh, you, you save a lot of latency issues. So essentially it's just more efficient to do it with a, with an SFU.
1: So that's ultimately how you get around that having to send data to every single peer in the, in the call, which gets pretty, pretty hard work on your bandwidth so. Sure. Is there something about
3: JavaScript or Node that makes it uniquely suited to WebRTC problems? I mean, I know you need to use it on the client, but it seems like I've seen a lot of Node activity with WebRTC. Is it just because of the stream stuff that's
1: built into it? Um, I mean, it's partly so the sort of easy way to do like signaling and stuff is to just... So when I say signaling, basically to set up a peer-to-peer call, you have to have some server there to help initiate that call to basically help the peers find each other, right? Because they can't just like reach out and connect to each other. So like simple WebRTC, we also open source Signal Master, which is just a really simple like node server which uses WebSockets for the signaling. So I mean I think that's probably one reason why. Node has become used for that is just because you need the sort of bidirectional web sockets to make connections easily. Oh, sure. Um, but for Toki 2, we're actually using XMPP for the signaling. So that's actually um, an XMPP server called Prosody, which is written in Lua on the backend. And then oh, who even knows what the SFU is written in C++ or something probably. But So yeah, we're not actually using that much Node for the sort of main architecture stuff um, on Toki 2, although the original version was all node backend. So yeah. Cool. If no one has any other questions about
3: that, I want to make a wild shift in topics.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm still a little bit fuzzy on all of the things that go into WebRTC. So you're saying it's peer-to-peer, but then you need some server in the middle to kind of coordinate things. So it's not actually like the place that everything goes through to talk to each other.
2: Well, the short version is that you need, in order for two browsers to connect directly to each other, they need to find each other somehow. Right. So, uh, it's really in that setup process that you need some service that says, hey, this user over here is trying to connect to this user over here. Gotcha. And here's how you pass message, the signaling messages back and forth to figure out how to connect. And once you have a direct connection, you have a, you know, a peer-to-peer media stream, but your signaling messages usually go through some sort of other system. Uh, you can pass those by any means there's a you know some dev made a thing where you could basically copy and paste these uh, you know these stps back and forth through something like chat to set up a, a serverless web rtc connection but you the point is you need some way to kind of pass the original signaling messages in order to establish the peer connection to begin with you need that discovery process
0: so the other thing that i'm kind of wondering about is with and this is just me stealing other ideas from uh, Hangouts On Air, uh, where you can effectively, well, not effectively, you can record your Hangout onto a server at, at YouTube, and then, you know, your video is available on YouTube. Could you set up basically a WebRTC client on a server somewhere that kind of gets added to the mix, but isn't, you know, explicitly a participant in the video conference? And then record stuff that way?
2: I suppose you could. Usually, the way recording is done is by going through a central unit and then recording it there. You need to decrypt in order to record anything useful. So, you kind of need it to be a. I mean, at, at that point, the pureness of it doesn't really gain you anything, if that makes sense. Right. You know, at the point where you're recording and broadcasting, it's a different scenario. And so, you know, at that point, you may as well just create the most efficient network architecture you can find a way to record it. And you can do that with, you know, an SFU as well, if you have the right one. So that's something that we're, you know, that we're looking at doing as well as the recording and, and even the kind of the broadcast scenario. But they, they are different problems in the same way. It's like, you don't, I don't know, you don't really broadcast with BitTorrent either. You seed up, you seed to a bunch of different peers and then that kind of thing, right? So it's a little bit of a different problem. Mm-hmm. Is your curiosity satisfied, Chuck? It
0: is I am kind of curious about one other thing and I know you're going to ask about it. So I'm just wondering if Talky uses ampersand JS in order to uh, build its website and run everything or is it all just simple web RTC?
1: The client-side code is all, um, well, for talkie too, um, is all ampersand and Lance uh, on our team has been working up a bunch of, so OTalk, which is the kind of open source components which make up, Talky as a product, a lot of the O components are kind of little ampersand modules um, that handle like peers, are keeping track of video streams, handling the upgrade and downgrade of like high and low resolution streams. So yeah, a bunch of those components are in an ampersand, and then yeah, the sort of talkie client in itself for the next version of Talkie is
2: all is all ampersand too. The first version that's public right now was written with kind of the precursor to what ended up becoming ampersand, but it's basically it's still Still some of the same code. So can you talk a little bit about what ampersand is? Sure. Um, so ampersand is, is essentially, I mean, for years we were using backbone to build applications and that we were doing these real time applications and kind of using pieces of backbone and then gradually adding more and more and more things on top of backbone. And we find that most people that, you know, have production apps written in backbone really use Backbone kind of as a, as a lower-level framework, and then they kind of write their own framework on top of it. Because, you know, it does a few things really well, but it doesn't do everything that you need. And so, you know, ampersand... And, and, and there's also this other kind of weird problem with, with Backbone. Even though it's really small and modular, it's tightly coupled. So if you want to use, you know, some other model with Backbone collections, it's a little bit tricky to do that. So us being very heavy into Node and kind of the whole small modules thing, We thought it'd be cool if we just took all the various pieces of Backbone, but really separated them out into little NPM modules and actually just published them to NPM. And so that's really what ampersand is. is It's a a collection of Backbone-like pieces (laughs) that you can use to assemble an application.
0: So it's not Backbone, and it's not built on Backbone, but it's like Backbone.
2: A lot of the code, uh, at least to start, was from Backbone. So if you come from Backbone, it, it feels very familiar but we've definitely forked. It's not like we're installing Backbone and then tweaking stuff on top of it. We've, we've definitely made the separation. That, at the point where we did that is when we called it ampersand. And we announced it about, I don't know, six months ago now. And, and we've been really kind of amazed at the, the rate of adoption. So that's been fun. I think as far as people kind of approaching these frameworks, people, framework is kind of a dirty word to a lot of JavaScript people because they're used to kind of, tiny things that work, you know, that solve one problem, especially in the node community. That's a, that's a big thing. But what you lose with tons of tiny modules is kind of a coherent place to go for like documentation and for examples and for like canonical ways to like assemble an application using these tiny modules. It's like, it's kind of a free for all. And so people that aren't used to hunting around for NPM modules to find that solve their one little problem, it's kinda of hard to like tell them, hey, go look at this thing, use this thing. And so that's really the the idea behind Ampersand is it's like it's cohesive, but they're all individual modules. So
3: uh Ampersand to me I haven't used it a lot. I've just looked at it. But it does feel like the front end framework built by people who use and and like Node a lot. And it also seems kind of like it's kind of a departure from the trend in front end frameworks like that right now. Because for a while, Backbone has been the straw man that you just use to show how crappy it is and how awesome your framework is because it's, <laughs> it's better than Backbone than those, I don't know. You don't have to be one of those poor, awful souls trapped in horrible Backbone land. <laughs> so it seems kind of like a bold move to build a framework that is based on Backbone or Backbone-like ideas and say, like, these were good ideas and we want to take these good ideas and, and build on them. Have you gotten yeah, I mean, any
2: pushback I think- on that or? I think that the, the thing that people underestimate is the fact that there are probably more production apps uh, built in Backbone than the closest competitor by miles. And that's because of its flexibility. I think what happens is when people get to, you know, we're at the point where you need to tweak something, you need to ship something, like you need to have flexibility that really just, I, you need to be able to kind of Make adjustments as you go, and you don't want to necessarily be tied down to a particular frame of thought that's been just kind of handed to you by the framework authors. So I, I believe that flexibility of Backbone is, is part of the reason it's so popular. Yes, you have to do, you know, you can shoot yourself in the foot very easily, but I don't think it's a good idea to underestimate its its success. If that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you no, disagree, it does. but, uh.
3: Um, so I think. Um, what you said earlier about Backbone and everyone kind of building their own framework on top of Backbone as they build applications is true. And I know that that's definitely been my experience with Backbone. Do you think open sourcing the framework in some ways is a defense against the, we built our own crappy internal framework that's, that's worse and no one understands because it's not documented. Is it like pressure to make sure that this tool that you use is, is easy for newcomers to pick up and, and things like that?
2: It's kind of one of those things. Ryan Florence wrote a really great article about this. He said, you know, not picking a framework is, you are still picking a framework. He says, you're just picking your own framework. And if it's not something that's uh good enough to wear and well-documented enough that you feel comfortable throwing it up there on GitHub as a thing, then, you know, why are you using your own crappy framework? And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, I mean, the truth is, this, this wasn't just like, hey, we want to make a framework. We have plenty of other things to do. That's not really like a goal here. The point is kind of documenting and formalizing the the approaches we've been taking building applications for years and, um, kind of just sharing that. And by sharing it, it also forces, you know, it's, it's the whole reason for open source where you get lots of other people contributing, making your code better. And you get, like, we've, you know, in the last six months or so, we've had like a hundred people contributing code. And, uh, you know, finding bugs and stuff. And so there, there's huge value even for us, you know, getting more help, uh, making our tool set better that we're using to ship apps for clients. So it's kind of self serving in a way as well. And, you know, the, the fact that people, other people are finding it and using it is kind of a perk more than anything. Sure. That makes a lot of sense.
0: So what was it about Backbone that made you want to fork from it? Like where, where have you deviated?
2: One of the issues that I personally have with it is uh well really our team has is the models, for example, are very loose. You can store absolutely anything you want on them. So as a result and in models, if you're if you're using models to store all the state in your application, um you want them to be really readable and you want them to mean something when you open it up and look at the code. So what we do is we force you to define the properties that you're gonna store. And as a result, your models kind of become documentation for the application that you're building. And so, um, and they also kind of enforce types and stuff for you just in the model layer. We just make sure that if you say it's a string when you try to set a property that's not a string, then it tells you that. So whereas in Backbone, you know, you can kind of be setting random properties on a model, you know, in whatever view and all over your code base. And, uh, you'd never, there's no central place to go look at it. And so that was one of the main kind of starting issues that we had with backbone models. I mean, beyond that, too, just the flexibility of being able to say use, uh, so it turns out, you know, if you have a really nice, concise little state management object, that's useful in libraries, you know, that have nothing to do with, you know, that aren't a whole application. So if I just want to use, they say I wanted to use Backbone models inside a little library that someone's going to use in another application. I don't want to include all of Backbone. I don't need to include a router and collections and all this stuff. You know, just so I can use the, the model code within Backbone. And so by splitting everything out into these independent modules, like, I can just go install ampersand state. And it's just, like, the core state management piece. And I can use that, for example, in a, uh, you know, like I've, I've we've used it for things like uh, touch libraries where you're trying to t- track, you know, finger movements on a screen, and you create a model that represents that touch when when the finger's on the screen, and then you can calculate using derived properties and things when you're holding versus you know, and, and kind of how far it's moved from its original spot. There's lots of cases where you're managing state and relationships between variables is really useful for libraries, and so. By having that cleanly split out into its own thing, then you can just kind of use that one piece without having to then say, hey, guess what? You're using Backbone now. And here's also a router and a collection that I'm just going to bundle in here. Does that make sense?
3: Yep. Yeah, that's really cool. I, so, I feel like I've copied a lot of code from libraries that didn't split it out in the same way I wanted it to be split out. So it's a cool principle.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to is like, we kind of tired of doing that and it doesn't feel like we should be doing that. <laughs> and uh, with NPM, NPM is just phenomenally good at dependency management. And uh, so with NPM and Browserify, like you can basically split things down into as small components as makes sense to, to do. And then if you wanted to publish a higher level module, you just have it use, you know, your even if it's 20 tiny little modules, it doesn't matter. You can still kind of, you could essentially build a, a larger library by assembling a bunch of these smaller modules. And so by kind of trying to keep everything, by doing it as, as a whole and saying, hey, here's a bunch of these little tiny modules that work well together, we kind of get the benefit of flexibility without you know having to depend on too many external small modules maintained by other people. So do
0: you, what do you feel like the trade-offs are then between something like Ampersand or Backbone versus something like Ember or Angular? Is it just, you know, that you have to pull in the entire ecosystem in order to make them
2: work? Or is it, there more not, to it than that? It's not just about pulling it in. It's about completely having to buy into that thing. And, you know, if you t- take a look at something like Angular, for example, when you're building an Angular app, you're building an Angular app and you're learning the framework, right? You're, you're learning how to, how, how Angular expects you to kind of describe your application, uh, using a lot of custom tags and things in your HTML. And you're very much like, if you then later decided to go, you know, that Angular wasn't the right fit, you know, there's a bunch of code to change and, uh, you can't just kind of easily shift out to something else. Like you're committed kind of at that point. And so. I think by building on a more flexible starting point, then it just means that, you know, if you hit a problem and, and something that the framework doesn't solve for you, you're not up a creek. You just go solve it in another module and you replace it and you keep going. And it kind of, it's a, kind of a future proofing, if you will. One mm-hmm. example is, you know, we've kind of getting into React a little bit recently and, uh, there's nothing stopping us from using ampersand models and then React for, for views. And so, you know, having that flexibility is pretty big. I don't, I don't, Philip, do you have any more thoughts on all this?
1: Lots of vague ones. In terms of trade-offs, I guess, yeah, like kind of what Henrik was saying, if you look at something like Ember, I think what's interesting there is they are being descriptive about the way you do things, and there's all those benefits in that in terms of kind of given structure to a team, right? Like, okay, you're a team of developers, so like this is the way that stuff is done in Emberland, which I think works for a lot of people, but a lot of people, especially from like a Node background don't think about problems and want to solve them that way. And the kind of modular approach gives them some flexibility so that they can build things the way they want to build them. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. We had a lot of this discussion a couple of weeks ago with Michelle Martins on Ruby Rogues, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to go look into that. But yeah, he, he has a very small library, minimalist approach to his programming and his written frameworks for the Ruby programming language that are, you know, simple and and have this kind of idea about them where it does one thing or, you know, a small set of things really well. And then if you need other functionality that's outside of that, then you pull in the module or library that gives it to you. And that way it's easy to understand where each piece lives and what the trade-offs are for using it because you're not pulling in an entire ecosystem that have a lot of side effects, but you're just pulling in one small thing that does its job and may have a few side effects. Yeah, exactly.
2: It's a very similar philosophy. And, and he's great. I've, I've talked to him in the past. He's, like, he's awesome. I think it also has to do with abstraction, right? you got to pick the abstraction level that makes the most sense. And I think if you abstract too far away from what's actually happening in the browser and you're kind of describing things at more of a meta level, it's harder to debug things when something goes wrong. You know, and that's, I think that's the problem that I have with kind of all these compile to JavaScript type solutions too, is that you're kind of adding levels between you and the browser. And, uh, you know, as a partner in the company, like I want our team to get really good at JavaScript and to understand the DOM. And if some, you know, if some other tool comes along that solves problems better, then great. We should use it and we should be able to switch to it without throwing away you know, all this domain-specific knowledge that we've... or kind of framework-specific knowledge that we've built up, right? So having having flexibility and kind of future-proofing at a team level is is good, too. I'm not necessarily ready to hitch, hitch our entire team's wagon to a particular tool or framework.
3: I've heard you say a, a few times that building... Um, with kind of smaller components and more composable pieces allows you to make changes later easier. Like if you if you change your framework direction, basically. Have you actually done this using ampersand? Because I've heard this, but I've, I've never just rewritten a whole app from
2: scratch into a different framework. Right. So, I mean, one thing that, that people have been doing is kind of porting Backbone apps gradually to ampersand, which is being able to do that is kind of neat. But, that you know, that's still kind of sort of in the same vein. But, you know, one example is the, uh, the to do MVC app. So, you know, I wrote that uh, and submitted that because they asked us to do it and then kind of started doing a ampersand plus react version of it too. And it involved changing three files. Uh, I changed because, you know, there's a view for the, the task. There's a view for the uh, kind of the main application. And then, you know, it just replaced those with react components and. You know, it didn't require completely re-architecting the application. So
0: one thing I I do want to push back on a little bit here is that, uh, you know, a lot of these larger frameworks do give you some nice things. I don't know that they aren't necessarily things that you couldn't pull out into their own little plugin. But, you know, the way that the ecosystem all kind of hangs together allows you to make certain assumptions about the way that the code works. Certainly. So I'm wondering, you know, is that a
2: trade off that you you miss at all? Or I think uh, it, there's there's always trade offs, right? I mean, there's yeah. It, it, what we're trying to do with ampersand and the reason we gave it a name and the reason we're assembling it into a single documentation site and everything is because we want to get some of those benefits of the cohesiveness and kind of understanding the patterns and things within the code kind of get some of those advantages that you get by kind of adopting a way to do things that frameworks give you while still maintaining the flexibility to kind of mix and match as you will. So, I mean, we're trying to kind of as much as possible walk that line, right? Maintain the flexibility give you a cohesive starting point, give, you know, kind of consistent approaches for things and kind of explain the philosophy behind it. But again, not enforcing that in any way if you want to deviate from it or if you want to just use, you know, a piece of it here and there or, you know, there's nothing stopping somebody from doing that.
0: So another question I have, and this is going to go off into another different direction, is the book Human JavaScript. Is that kind of a, a handbook for writing things with ampersand JS or is it more of an approach to writing JavaScript?
2: I wrote that before we officially released ampersand. I mean, yes, I wrote it, but it's really just compiling a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of lessons learned from our team uh, building client-side applications for, you know, four years or so. And you know, so a lot of the the philosophy in that book kind of shows up in the code. And after releasing ampersand, I went back and kind of edited some of the examples in the book as well to kind of be more in line with what people will find when they go look at ampersand. But yeah, it's very much, it, it, the, the idea behind the book is to kind of explain the philosophies and everything behind it, and um, really kind of optimize for developer happiness as much as possible. I think really thinking about the developer workflow is is important as well, and kind of the dynamics of working on a team. It's so easy, especially with kind of the, the myriad of options in front-end development to kind of end up with this mess of a code base. There are so many people that code themselves into corners that, you know, it's impossible for somebody else to really jump in and be useful on an application. And so really kind of explaining the, the approaches that we've taken as a team to be able to effectively do this. So even if the applications are not uh, identical by any means, you know, we can throw pretty much any dev on our team into any one of our, you know, ampersand based apps and they can be useful very quickly. I don't know, Philip kind of experienced some of that when he first joined our team.
1: Yeah, I I came on sort of in the middle of a previous product that we were working on. And I came from a pretty messy, I say messy because it was my code base from a startup I was working at. And started working on Anbang, which is like a real-time chat product that we used to work on. And uh, either the people on the team or the approach that we've taken worked because I was able to like dive in and start fixing bugs with kind of no real context of the code base but yeah i don't know i don't know what the reason for that was but uh but it really seems to work, that- yeah it seems to work in our team pretty well in terms of navigating
2: your way around the front end code base and figuring out what's doing what and yeah i mean i think the thing is you have to find the thing that works for your team and i'm not saying by any means that ampersand is that for everybody but it, it's it's kind of worked for us in terms of being able to you know, it kind of matches our team's very kind of node-based philosophy. And, you know, it enables us to kind of have people that know JavaScript jump into a project without really having to go learn a framework. Do
0: you foresee anyone building things on top of ampersand, sort of like what's happened with Backbone? I mean, you have things like Marionette and Geppetto, you know, that kind of extend Backbone into more of a fully featured framework. Do you think people are going to do that same kind of thing with ampersand? Yeah,
2: we're we're already seeing some of that. The other thing with Backbone is it's so minimalistic, right? Like, and, and the reason they don't add things to core is because then all of a sudden now everybody you know gets that code. Whereas by having everything literally individually installed, like we can have it be very fleshed out. We can have a very complete framework because there's things that we can add that a bunch of people won't ever install, even even if they're using ampersand. So. You know, I think it lets us build out a more complete toolkit without forcing it on people. So, you know, we can write things that, like, for example, we've got a bunch of, you know, helper code for dealing with forms and all that stuff is completely optional. And there's no way you'd see code like that in Backbone, uh, Backbone core, but like, there's no reason we can't just publish another module that, you know, kind of works in the same general way. And they, this is a way to mess with and to, to handle some of the challenges that comes with. You know, client-side form validation for single page apps. So we're trying to make it very complete as well and we're, we're seeing you know a lot of other people kind of write, for example custom form inputs for that. Uh, so there's other people publishing you know ampersand <laughs> form inputs and whatnot. But I mean the short of it is I certainly would hope people build you know what are, uh, use this just as a dependency on their larger grander scale projects as well. So how do you
0: decide what will go in and what won't go in? Or, or when do you decide to split something off that you've sort of built into ampersand if you decide that it's not a critical feature and could, you know, stand to live on its own and be brought in when it's needed?
2: Well, we're doing some of that already, actually. Uh, I mean, the way I don't know. The way we decide is when it feels like it's getting too big or if it's not you know, if it's something that should be cleanly split out. But I think the truth is we started with it all split out to begin with. And that was kind of the core tenant to start even. So, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, at, at the point where it makes sense for something to be standalone and where it's used multiple places and where we want to maintain it and test it separately, it makes sense to do so. So at that point we do it.
0: Are any other questions, guys, before we go to picks? Are there
2: any
1: questions you wished we sure. would have asked you? I don't know. I think we covered most of it.
2: Talkie, Amazon, and uh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm happy. The I guess the other thing that we're starting to do more and more uh, now that I think about it is uh, like trainings as well. So we're um, you know we're having people come ask us for training. So uh, for example, uh, this week we're going to go to Airbnb in San Francisco and do a training for their team. So that's another thing that we're kind of getting into as well uh, in terms of consulting around the open source projects and whatnot. But uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff's just kind of come out of continuing to try to push the open source stuff and to make stuff that's as useful as possible and to just to share what we learn as we go. So exciting to see that people are finding it useful and wanting to dig deeper.
0: Now, does this depend on jQuery to do some of the DOM work the way that Backbone does?
2: No, actually, jQuery is completely optional on this. Uh, you can use jQuery, but uh, it's not part of it in any way. So, it, I mean, an interesting fact is like the to-do MVC application that we built for this is actually smaller. The entire app with all its dependencies is smaller than jQuery itself. So you end up with really kind of small file sizes as well by only installing what you actually use. So that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, we, we were kind of surprised to see just how small it was. But, uh, yeah, we, we try to, as much as possible, just kind of keep the larger dependencies out of it. In fact... We're in the process of doing the same with underscore. So you don't necessarily have to use like install all of underscore to use uh, just a function of it, but that's just kind of in progress.
1: Yeah. JQuery, jQuery becomes kind of a headache in browserify lands just because it exists as like a page global, whereas everything in browserify is kind of intended to be scoped. So we've both just for not depending on it file size wise, but also just because it kind of fits. We've made everything not depend on jQuery.
2: So it works. Yeah. We're well. not, we're not crazy about byte counting. That's not really the why. It's just, you know, once we actually ripped everything apart, like it ended up being pretty small and which has a really nice side effect of working really well on mobile devices as well. So, you know, some of the larger JavaScript frameworks uh, can be a bit memory intensive for mobile devices. And so, so far we've been really happy with the performance that we're seeing for mobile as well.
5: Did you find that to be at all of an issue, not including jQuery? If people want to use it, they still can. Uh, there's there's no, a few I mean, little for you guys. Did no, you I it? mean
2: we've we've found a few little edge case bugs, the uh, things that we didn't know jQuery was doing for us. Just weird things. Like apparently, you don't get a mouse enter uh, on stacked elements if they share the same border. You only get the uh, mouse enter on the outermost element, but jQuery makes that seamlessly disappear so if you're listening for a mouse enter on one of the you know kind of inner stacked boxes it will still just work and I, I never knew browsers worked that way until we hit that bug and it's like oh okay but then we can deal with those things and I mean but overall there really haven't been that many at all and the other thing we did with ampersand is we drew a line at ie9 we said this is what we're supporting and so that certainly eliminates a lot of those kind of edge case bugs that uh, that jQuery solved for us. And again, it's not that we're not abstracting the DOM tools. Uh, we are. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's libraries inside ampersand for doing things like adding classes and whatnot. But, you know, that allows us to find and solve those problems when we, you know, run the tests on those individual modules. So
5: I think overall we're, we're pretty happy without it. It's sort of an interesting state of modern browsers today that jQuery is a lot less necessary than it has been in the past, right? Certainly. I think, uh, you know, a lot of what it does is just provide a simpler API
2: these days, especially, you know, the 2.0 branch. Right. I mean, there's tons of edge cases that they've solved and it's, I'm not in any way trying to discredit that, but I think, you know, by having individual modules and testing them individually and running them, using things like open source from, from sauce labs to run them against, you know, IEs. And all that, you know, on, as part of a CI process, you can be quite confident that stuff will work the way you expect it to, which is which is nice.
5: But the takeaway here is that you hate jQuery. No, not at all. <laughs> Sorry, I was joking. Uh, no, but I mean,
2: I, I don't hate it. It's it's I. That's what sucked me into JavaScript to begin with. That was a pity laugh that you just got, Joe. <laughs> that that was a total pity laugh. <laughs> a can, can, laugh. Can we edit?
5: Can we edit my bad jokes out? The ones that flop.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: wah,
6: wah.
2: <laughs> You'll notice I haven't really been making very many jokes at all. So, my odds are they wouldn't be that good. Well, I know you
0: guys have a hard stop that we need to uh, honor. So let's go ahead and get into the picks. And we'll let you guys go first. So, Henrik, uh, what are
2: your picks? Just a few things that I've found interesting recently. It can be anything, right? Yep. There's a there's a library called Impulse that I think is pretty awesome. Uh, it's impulse.luster.io. And uh, it's a really cool little tool for kind of adding these dynamic physics types animations to your apps. So, for example, on, if you go to that page, like, you can drag the title around, uh, which is pretty awesome. And It'll kind of bounce back using actual, like, physics simulations, which is pretty sweet. I don't know that was, that was kind of my top one. I'm trying to think what else I had.
0: When people are trying to think of pics, I always ask them, what's the most awesome thing in the whole world? And then I usually get a movie or a TV show or some (laughs) YouTube video or something. Oh,
2: another one. Another one is totally, you you should totally go watch Philip's talk uh, on the event loop that he did at JSConf U. Uh, It's freaking awesome. And even, you know, for, for veteran JS devs, it's like explains how the event loop works in a really, really approachable way. And he built this ridiculously amazing tool for visualizing code as it's running. Definitely worth checking out.
0: Awesome. Philip, what are your
1: picks? Okay, I've got two. The first one, I promised my friend Pete that I would give a shout out to Scotland JS, which is a conference in Edinburgh, Scotland next year in May. He's run it for the last few years here, and it's a really nice conference. If anyone wants an excuse to come to Scotland, that's a good one. And uh, I'm pretty sure he's looking for sponsors to make it happen this year, too. So if anyone out there is interested in helping him out, scotlandjs.com is the site. And the other thing I found really interesting recently is a site called useronboard.com, which is, I don't actually know the, the guy's name, but he basically like walks through the onboarding process of various different like web products and kind of breaks them down. It's like a teardown, but for web products, right? So It's like, super cool. Yeah. It's really fascinating. As someone who's working on like thinking about onboarding for web stuff, the way he like breaks stuff down. So he does like various apps. There's like Kickstarter and he even has one for Yo. Remember that stupid Yo mobile app, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. UserOnboard.com. It's really fascinating. If you're thinking about how trying to get like a beginner's mindset on how someone approaches your product, it's interesting to like go through those kind of slide decks. Yeah. I think, I think those are my two.
6: Awesome. AJ, what are your picks? I'm going to do some more non technology picks this week. Really just one and that is Smash Bros. Because I got the Wii U Smash Bros, and it's glorious. Oh my goodness. Nintendo (laughs) has waited way too long to do an HD system like... They should have done one 10 years ago, back when everybody else started. But anyway, you can customize characters, I found out. You can, um, like Bowser has at least two different spin attacks, and I'm sure that I'll unlock more. And lots of different characters have different, like when you select them, you can actually customize them to use a different attack than the normal one. So you still have the same number. And they have this thing that I thought was going to be kind of dumb, just kind of gimmicky, called Amiibo but it turns out to be really cool. Um, They're figurines that you tap to the gamepad and they will fight against you and your friends and they start out and they suck. They're like level one AI CPUs. But when you level them all the way up, they're actually really hard. They're more difficult than the CPUs on the hardest setting of like normal gameplay, I think. And they actually, supposedly, they learn your fighting style and learn to fight against you better. It's kind of geeky, but it's kind of cool.
2: You're so, making me want to buy one.
6: I, I totally recommend a Wii U. Like if you don't have one, now is the time to get one because Hyrule Warriors is out, Mario Kart 8 is out, Smash Bros. is out. Like the reasons that you haven't been getting a Wii U, if you're a Nintendo person, are like it's it's over. Like the wait is over, the games are here. <laughs> so we will can you finally play, play.
2: Will you play me Mario Kart online? Can you do that?
6: Yeah, we can actually set up a tournament. I'll I'll get your Skype info Sweet. and and we'll <laughs> I, I, you get some sort of token you share with the other person. I haven't done it yet, but I need I, to
2: go. I need to go get one real quick. But yeah, we should. Yeah, have me show. too. I see Yeah, well, Mario yeah. Kart's pretty rad.
6: I, I would love to do a, a JS Jabber tournament. <laughs> you can have up to twelve <laughs> people on Mario Kart. So
0: <laughs> nice, nice, awesome. Jameson, what
3: are your picks? So I have four picks because I missed the last uh, episode. The first pick is kind of an aspirational pick. I haven't used it personally yet, but I looked at it. That makes me super qualified to talk about it. Um, it's called Nix. It's kind of like a homebrew or apt-get style like system package management thing, but their spin on it is that it's purely functional, which is a cool buzzword to use right now. Um, but basically it's it's theoretically a way of creating more reproducible system level configuration, which is Something I appreciate more and more the more Opsy stuff I do. Uh, my next pick is a newsletter by Fogus. He wrote functional JavaScript and the joy of closure. And he's kind of a big functional and JavaScript person. He has a newsletter called read eval print love that comes out pretty irregularly, but he just released a new issue of it. I think you can pay for it, but you can also just read it online. And it's really fascinating look into Lisp and like the history and culture of it. So just super good read. Um, and then my next two picks are two podcasts. So Alex Bloomberg, the guy from Planet Money and this American life left to start a podcasting company and he made a podcast about him starting the podcasting company. And it's, uh, it's called Startup Podcast, I think, but it's a really good listen because you hear his 3 a.m. doubts. Where he just like wakes up in the middle of the night and is like, What am I doing with my life? My family's gonna lose their house. And like, it's kind of the ups and downs of starting a business without the mythology of like success kind of plastering over all the crappy stuff that happened early on. And then my second podcast pick is called Reply All. And it's actually a podcast started by his company kind of a few weeks into it. It's kind of about technology and the internet, but not in like a let's review this iPhone app way. It's like kind of a This American Lifestyle where they look at stories, but they're based around technology. So those are my picks.
5: All right. Joe, what are your picks? All right. Well, if Jameson gets four, then I'm going to do 72 picks. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. So my first pick, pick—if for anybody who knows anything at all about me, they should totally have been able to predict this. I'm picking the Star Wars trailer that came out last Thursday. (laughs) Oh, heck yeah. I have to say that I am such a huge nerd. I literally threw my hands up in the air as I watched it, and uh, it was a total geek moment. So super excited about that. I'm really glad that George Lucas didn't have to die for his kids to sell off the IP to somebody else for us to get more movies. Really grateful. (laughs) Glad about that. And I will not admit as to whether or not I ever prayed that that would happen. <laughs> For my second pick, since you reminded me earlier, you said it could be literally anything. I'm going to pick air because I really appreciate air. It, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> oh and gosh. So I'm, I'm picking air. I'm what are your other
1: 70 picks?
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually only going to do three picks today. <laughs> my third and final pick is a YouTube channel called Working With Lemons. And they're people I actually know... And they do live action versions of Disney cartoon, like songs, like Frozen and Tangled and things like that. And their kids are super cute and extremely talented. And they're extremely popular. Some of their videos have like tens of millions and dozens of millions of hits because they're really excellent stuff and just hilarious and super cool to watch. So that's going to be my third and final pick. Um, and as a note as well, my new latest course on what's new in Angular 1.3 is coming out sometime soon. should be out within like a week of when this gets published. All right. That's it for me.
0: So Dave, did you want to do some picks or should I just cut this out?
4: I have uh, two picks for you today. The first one is a project that you're probably all familiar with called Font Awesome, which is a really cool project that if you don't already know, just Google it. But basically this guy created almost 500 icons using a font, which is just really clever and cool. And I'm sure most of you are already using it. But the spin on that I wanted to point out is that another project that I follow casually now for the last few years is called Qt, which is a really awesome desktop application and server application development framework for C++. uh, Has adopted it. Well, third-party project has adopted it called Qt Awesome, which I thought was really creative. I had no idea they could do it. So that's pretty cool. Um, My second pick is a charting library. Which, it's actually a charting service called Librato, And the idea is if you use StatsD or, a pro, or something like that to record data statistics for your system, um, you can, instead of having to host the visualization part yourself with like graphite charts and stuff, you can just schlep all of your data over to Librado and they will host the charting and graphical visualization part, which is pretty cool. So we've been using it for a few weeks and it's pretty nifty to have that totally outsourced. So you don't have to deal with hosting graphite and keeping servers up and stuff. You can just send it all over to Labrador. So I like it. Those are my two picks.
0: Awesome. I've got a couple of picks that I'm going to throw out there. The first one, Joe's pick kind of reminded me of this. This is something that was shared by a friend of mine with me. It's called Honest Trailers. I think my favorites are Lion King and Twilight, if you suffered through the Twilight movie. If you read the books and suffered to, through the Twilight movie, it's even more appropriate. Anyway, so so yeah, I definitely have to pick those. And then um, I'm going to pick a video by my friend John Sonmez. I was trying to get organized. I've been working on my goals for the, the end of this year and next year. And I shared my goals, shared some of my struggles, and he shared this video. Um, it uses a Kanban board to manage each day's tasks called Kanban Flow. And it's just awesome. So uh, I'm going to pick Kanban Flow and I'm going to pick that video. And uh I'm also going to pick my three-year-old if you can or can't hear him screaming outside my door because he and his sister were fighting. Anyway, so I apologize if you can hear it, and I, I bless my mic if you can't. So those are all the picks. Just remind everybody, go check out jess Remote Conf. And thanks again, guys, for coming,
2: Uh Henrik and Philip. Yeah, this thanks was great Thank you for thanks. having us. It was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, thanks. Hey, right. I just
2: remembered one last little tiny detail. Oh, uh, go ahead. If- so, I, we were talking about talkie too, and we didn't talk anything about, like, what, it, when it's gonna be released or any of that. We, we may or may not be, uh, sneakily going to be sending everybody on our mailing list, kind of an early peak invite to actually go check it out. So, uh, I added the link there if you wanna get on our, our non-sucky and yet email list, uh, about things related to cool web stuff. <laughs> oh, definitely. But th- that way you get a little early preview. We're setting up like a, a, a alpha version for people on, on that list. So
0: are there any other ways that you want people to keep track of you or get a hold of you?
2: You know, definitely just if you're interested in the training stuff, and yet.com slash training, and certainly, you know, follow us all on Twitter. We post a lot of stuff on Twitter, so that tends to be kind of our main and our blog, of course.
0: Awesome. All right, Thank well you. I guess that's it. We'll catch you all next week. Have you noticed that a lot of developers always land the job they interview for? Are you worried that someone else just landed your dream job? John Sonmez can show you how to do this with the course, How to Market Yourself as a Software Developer. Go to devcareerboost.com and sign up using the code JJABBER to get $100 off. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products.